Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans, featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Welcome to another edition of Big Conversations Little Bar. My name is Patrick Evans, and I am joined by my co-host Randy Florence. Hello, he- Patrick. Hello, Randy. We are back here at Skip Page's Little Bar, the center of the Coachella Valley universe, where all good things happen. Occasionally something bad happens and Skip bounces you out of the joint. We What's haven't that? seen Skip recently, so we must be doing okay. We're all right. He hasn't 86 just yet. What was that? Norway and Sweden. He's in Norway so and Sweden. We're safe. He's so he's with the he Adam also. He is going to be able to be in both Norway and Sweden. <laughs> and whatever it is, he won't hear it for another 12 hours. Right. So. <laughs> he's going to bring us back some fresh locks. Some smoked salmon from Norway, I feel certain. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is starting off good. Yeah, it's great so far. Uh, we are delighted to... Uh, please, Randy, introduce our guest because you invited Todd. You had him on your previous podcast, twice apparently. <laughs> Nobody remembers it, but yes. <laughs> Todd Goldberg is our guest today. And, and, you know, when I had Todd on the other one, I listened to it again today. The introduction took like nine minutes, <laughs> and I think by the time I introduced you, you weren't really sure we were still on doing a show. Right. It sounds, so, sounds, I mean, my, my biography is lengthy, um, but, you know, if you live long enough, you, you start to acquire accolades, and suddenly, like, the bad stuff drops off. Like, no one even mentions the years I spent in prison anymore. <laughs> well, we're not going to talk get, about that. That'll be episode two. That'll be episode two. Uh, <laughs> New York Times best-selling author. Todd Goldberg. That's and, correct. And I'm banging on a book called The Low Desert, which uh, is a collection of short stories set in and around Palm Springs. And the the main theme that runs through these stories uh, has to do with gangsters. You correct. seem to be uh, fixated. Well, uh, I would say this about organized crime. My interest in organized crime comes from a, a, a pure place, which is that I'm fascinated by our capacity for violence, and I'm also fascinated by our capacity to celebrate people who have the capacity for violence. And so that goes back, you know, just from being a a weak little kid and thinking, God, it'd be great to be a little bit stronger. Um, But also because my mom, and we talked about this a bit on uh, the old, old, old show um, that uh, the gentleman here had. Um, (laughs) My mom liked to date gangsters and so for my entire life these dudes were were sort of in and out of my life and so i became sort of interested in these guys from a young age but i just i i i am interested in structures of crime um and so you know the coachella valley is built on it The, the coachella valley and las vegas were built by the same people um you know the the difference is that nevada got gambling and the coachella valley got golf (laughs) <laughs> and the Salton Sea. And the Salton Sea. <laughs> you, right. you mentioned in, in uh, the previous podcast that some guy did with you, <laughs> it took you a while to figure out why your mom was so well-dressed <laughs> because she was on a salary for a newspaper. Yeah, so this is a, a great thing about about being a, a local in the desert. So I'm sure you guys are going to bring out a bunch of these carpetbagger authors that roll through town. You're going to meet them somewhere. What, whatever used to be Yeah, Palomino. but you're number one. You're number and one. And you'll bring in some author with, <laughs> he's got alternate histories about the world. You'll ask him questions. It'll be fascinating. 
but I grew up here, so I know I know the the reality of, of the Coachella Valley. Um, and so my mom. Sometimes it was in your house when yes, you came home. Yeah. So my mom. So my family's had homes out here since the 1950s. Uh, my grandparents um, had a house at uh, Canyon Country Club, I think, in 1958. Um, they came down here from the Pacific Northwest to play golf, and because you can play golf as a Jew down here, and that was not the case uh, in Walla Walla, there, Washington. There were whole clubs that allowed it. Yeah, so. like one or two. Um, <laughs> and then there's the ones that that's, that still don't. That's right. We'll go on a tour of them later, a driving tour. <laughs> Just start in Rancho Mirage and stay Episode there. Episode three. Um, start in Rancho Mirage and stay there. So my mom was the society editor of the Desert Sun. And at the time, I guess the journalist ethics were not her strong suit. I mean, ethics were not her strong suit in general. But she was dressed by iMagnon and Saks Fifth Avenue. They just gave her free clothes. And then she would say things like, oh, what a wonderful sale they had at iMagnon's. Like, <laughs> so I just saw this person, that person, iMagnon's. And I was like, mom, there's no way that that's ethical. Because even at 13, I was, I was already pretty connected to ethics and uh, she's like no no it's fine it's fine but it turns out that's not how you do journalism no that would be <laughs> frowned upon in many circles i think um, in all circles <laughs> any legitimate circles yeah so she was we pretend to ask them for a bill for these drinks at, the, at little bar for this podcast i mean we... so she was dressed by all these places but then also just like she was always dating men that owned clothing stores there's this one guy that she dated who owned a, a suit store in downtown Palm Springs. And he's the guy who got me my first tuxedo. Um, and he operated a suit store that I never saw a single person go into and buy anything in. Not once. And he was there for like 12 years. <laughs> he was very successful. <laughs> he retired on it, so it must have been fine. <laughs> Excuse me. All right, let me ask you a question. Okay. Uh, we're going we're gonna to dig into your relationship with your mom and, and your parents, but... Uh, you just said something very interesting to me. You, you said your mom and ethics sort of had a passing yes. relationship, but you at thirteen were very connected. Where did that connection come from? Because you obviously weren't getting it as, as a role model from from your mom. Oh gosh, I don't know. You know, the, I mean, I don't know if I really had a great relationship with ethics. I mean, one of the first jobs I had working in the Coachella Valley was I worked for a gentleman who I only knew him by one name. And that was the tan man. And he sold suntan lotion. That sounds totally legit. Yeah. <laughs> he sold suntan lotion at the Riviera in downtown Palm Springs. And he had a stand in the back. And he hired, this is going to sound crazy, he hired like four of us. And I'm actually wearing the outfit right now. <laughs> <laughs> he hired four of us in white shirts and khaki shorts. And we sold, this is how long ago it was, we sold mink oil to people for like $30 a bottle. So this is back when you wouldn't wear an SPF. This is when you wore stuff to actually bake. Right, right. Baby oil. Yeah. Baby oil, yes. Well, baby oil plays a key role in this. <laughs> so we would sell suntan lotion to people for 30 bucks. They'd get drunk sitting out by the pool, and then Tan Man would say, all right, Goldberg, quick like a bunny, go steal some bottles. And so I'd go out, and everyone's in the pool, and I'd start stealing back the bottles. And then we'd refill them with baby oil and sell them back to people. For 30 bucks. For 30 bucks. <laughs> and we'd say, oh, the hotel must have picked it up and thrown it away. So sorry, whatever. And people were just drunk and on vacation. They didn't care. So this was a very lucrative job for, <laughs> for a young person during the season. But Mr. Tanman was doing pretty well, I Yeah, Tanman was doing great because he would pay us cash at the end of each week. Of course. Plus, plus we made tips. 
No 1099, I no, assume. Well, we're going to get to the 1099 in a second. Quick <laughs> so, story, Randy. So Memorial Day shows up, and Tan Man owes me $165 from that week. And that's big money. That's big money. This is 1987. Might as well have been a million dollars. And so I get to the Riviera. And mind you, at this time, I'm, I'm 16 years old. I look like I'm in a Cure video. I'm like goth, <laughs> but also on vacation. <laughs> Black leather bathing suit. Yeah. And so I get to the Riviera, and the stand where we sell suntan lotion is gone. And I'm like, where's the, where's the tan man? So I go inside the hotel, and I'm like, hey, my name's Todd. You know, I sell suntan lotion for the tan man at the pool. Um, he owes me $165. Have you seen him around? They're like... What are you talking about? I was like, you know, I work for Tan Man at the pool. They're like, what's his name? It's like, Tan? <laughs> first man. name Tan. First, first name Tan. Last name Man. Last name man. So they, everyone at the Riviera just shuffles me off and says, we don't know what you're talking about, kid. And I keep telling everyone, he owes me $165. And so finally they're like, go, go upstairs, talk to the GM. It's like, great. So I go upstairs, I knock on the GM's door. And I swear to God, you guys, this guy is like straight out of central casting. Shirt unbuttoned all the way down to his belly button. He's got on a bunch of chains and only rings on pinkies and thumbs. A lot of hair. A lot of hair. All right. And I'm like, hey. Uh, As I uncomfortably twist my <laughs> pinky ring. I'm like, hey, I, uh, I'm Todd. I work for Tan Man <laughs> down at the pool. He owes me 165 bucks, and I just want my money. The guy's like, I'm sorry, who did you say you are? And I was like, I'm Todd. I work for the tan man. I just want my money. He's like, oh, you come to me? <laughs> Asking me for your money? He's like, you got a W-9 here? And I was like, no. He's like, you and I ever had a conversation before? And I was like, no. He's like, get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God. That, and he was one of the first people to say that to me, where I recognized, like, oh, that's just not a word. That's, a, that's an actual, like... There's a history behind get the fuck out of my office when he says it. And so I got home, and my mom was getting ready for an event, so she's smoking and blow-drying her hair and covered in Chanel number 5. <laughs> and I'm like, Mom, uh, I went down to the Riviera to get my money because Tan Man owes me $165. And the GM of the Riviera kicked me out of the hotel. And my mom sets down everything. And she's like, the GM of the Riviera just kicked you out of the hotel? I was like, yeah, he told me never to come back. She's like, Todd, he's a foot soldier in the Bonanno Crime family. Oh, shit. And I was like, oh. So I guess I'm not getting my $165. She's like, don't ever go back in there. Don't ever step back another foot in there. And so that's how I learned ethics, Patrick. <laughs> you don't ask a man you don't work for for money. Did you ever find out what happened to the tan man? So it turns out the tan man had a rich history of every year working in a different hotel for another connected person um, where he just run this, you know, he, he was running a scam that the hotel knew about. And so he was kicking up to them just as well. And so he was everywhere. Um, it turns out his name was Rick. I've since learned, like in the last five years, that his name was Rick. That's all I know about That's him. That's it. That's it. Is he employed? Oh, he's got to be. Let's see, I'm 52, so he's got to be He's got to be just old enough to be a guest on this show eventually. <laughs> he's got to be probably 75, 80. Wow. Wow. Our show is He could be a, a host. A reputation. He, he no, no, he couldn't he be a host. He says he writes alternative history novels. I don't know if you'll ever meet him. <laughs> All right. I want to get away from Todd and the Tan Man for a moment. 
<laughs> Folks, uh, that Patrick Evans has passed. <laughs> yes. I so I will be, be doing back. this by myself I may today. not be back. He's still trying to take the rings <laughs> off his fingers. <laughs> no, no. I'm just trying to hide them from Todd. You just, I learned this from uh, EMT. So you just got to tie, uh, tie a little dental floss around your finger. And it slides right off. That's what they do for the dead people. So, so Todd and I suffer from something together. You were raised in the, in the East Bay of the nor- Northern California. Correct. And we root for the same teams. That's correct. You guys have not lived <laughs> until you have gone onto a Facebook baseball page and watched people whose entire life is just talking about what Joe DiMaggio meant to them on a Tuesday afternoon in 1953. true. And Todd shows up. <laughs> there's not many baseball comments, but there's a lot of comments afterwards. Talk to us a little bit about why you find being a baseball troll so enjoyable. Well, so the, the important thing here, Randy, is it's not just baseball. It's true. So I am a troll in three very specific places. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I'm liking this already. I am a troll in uh, Facebook baseball pages. Okay. I'm a troll on my next door. Oh, absolutely. And I'm a troll in the Palm Springs neighborhood group on Facebook. <laughs> and all three, I do the exact same thing, which is I try to amuse myself as much as possible by being benign and stupid um, without being offensive and also just saying things that I believe are true that I know run counter to the popular opinion. So in the baseball groups, it's this very strange thing. Everyone in these baseball groups must have seen Babe Ruth play in person because they, all they want to do is talk about Babe Ruth. And I always say the same thing and always gets me in trouble in these baseball groups. I'll say, if Babe Ruth were alive today, he wouldn't get out of double A. And 500 people will comment. And I'll say, look, he'd be 136 years old. There's no way he'd reach the major leagues. And, oh, everyone goes crazy. Or I say things like, if Babe Ruth were alive today, he'd be dead from diabetes. And, oh, they go crazy. They just go nuts. And it's, you know. Dead from diabetes. <laughs> these baseball groups are filled with, like, this very, it's a unique fringe of people. And I love baseball. Who love baseball. And then just, like, racists who've been kicked out of every other group. And they're like, well, I can, <laughs> I can still be a racist in the baseball group. And I got, I take no truck with that. And so invariably, it's always like Babe Ruth would rip off Otani's head and shit down his throat if he saw like. And it's always just you know jingoism, and and so I, I take great pains to to mock these people, which is uh, which is great fun. So there's that in the Palm Springs neighborhood group. <laughs> so folks, if you're listening outside of the Coachella Valley, and I don't know why you would be. Um, whoa, whoa, we're international. <laughs> we're worldwide. <laughs> global. So the Palm Springs neighborhood group is made up of people who are so self-serious in Palm Springs that they cannot take a joke. That is, so, that, that is a that's an epidemic. It's, it's a complete <laughs> epidemic. And so th- how it started was, this is a couple years ago, there was someone drove by the, the um, empty um, Caros in, in Palm Springs on East Palm Canyon and said oh I heard something was going in there. And so I just said, oh, it was announced recently that a Fuddruckers <laughs> is going into that empty Caro's. They're, they already have their alcohol license. And people went absolutely nuts. Now, people, had you started Photoshopping the... No. Okay. Not yet. 
Not yet. That, that's become a later skill set. People started driving over there and looking in the windows. People, like, there was a thread that went 800 deep of people saying, how dare they open up a FUD record here. My friend uh, Brian Blue Sky was working uh, at the news desk of Desert Sun that night, and he was getting calls, angry calls, about the Fuddruckers that was coming into the empty Caros in Palm Springs. And I, like, people were just so angry about it that I was like, well. Why were they so angry about Fuddruckers? Oh, how dare another corporate organization <laughs> come in? It's just stupid. Well, yeah, stuff. like, hasn't Fuddruckers been out of business since 19? Yeah, it's like 20 years, yeah, yeah. For a long time. And. So that's, that made it even funnier. Yeah, that's, like you, that's better. You morons don't have Google. Facts. <laughs> Facts have never been a big part of any of this. No. Yeah. And so I will play this joke out to the bitter end. And so there was this one woman who was, like, demanding that I be taken off Facebook for this and all sorts of crazy stuff. And she was like, I don't even think I've ever seen a Fuddruckers. And so I found <laughs> I found online. This is what this is what ended it that night. I found on the internet uh, like a puzzle that you could put together for three D Fuddruckers, like you know that of cards that you could put together. And I was like, I believe you're looking for this. And oh, that was it. Yeah, you're a terrible person. I know where you work. I'm calling your boss. I was like, oh, you're gonna call Gavin Newsom. Like, <laughs> and so subsequent to that, because it was so funny to me, I've just continued doing it. <laughs> And sometimes they let me, and sometimes the moderators don't let me. Well, I, I do want to say this. Gavin Newsom would like to be president. If he got enough complaint calls about it, he might fire him. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. Just to that's appease. Just to appease. I'm not so sure that there's not a future <laughs> a, as a marketing position for FUD records. Yeah. But for me, for sure. Yeah. Well, and recently, I <laughs> every abandoned restaurant could become a Fuddruckers oh, oh, under the Todd Goldberg. Going. The last thing that I did was I just decided one morning, oh, I'm going to put a, a Dave and Buster's in downtown Palm Springs oh. on an empty plot of land. And I photoshopped an under construction Dave and Buster's and I put it on that empty lot. Actually, it's next to Melvin's. <laughs> In front of all those homes. And I was like, oh, construction's coming along great. And people lost their minds. Oh, we've never seen this. The light ordinances, like, people just lost their They're minds. showing up at city council meetings. It's almost <laughs> as if they proposed an in and out for Rancho Mirage. Right. I love. Oh, wait a minute. I love that they, th what, what in and out did was like, oh, well, we're not going to do it. And then it's like, oh, it's summer? You're all gone? Yeah, we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Now, that's some gangster shit right there. That's, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to build it. No, no, no. Oh, you're gone? We're doing it. Loved I, it. I, I was a longtime resident of Rancher Mirage. Uh, so I you know. never golfed? As <laughs> <laughs> an Italian, I was not asked to fill out many foursomes. Uh, <laughs> but I took a piece of all the action that was going on at all the clubs. Uh, but, you know, I, now I live in Cathedral City, and so... I can say what I want about Ranch Right. Mirage. No, but I eat at the in and out in Ranch Mirage all the time. <laughs> just like it's to a, go to that drive-thru. It's a very good drive-thru. <laughs> it's it's better than La Quinta. It's better than Bermuda Dunes. There's, there's one right by the station. That the line's always really long. It's much better in Rancho Mirage. <laughs> and I tell people, I post it like, the, the burger just tastes better here in Rancho Mirage. It does. <laughs> it's true. Todd is also responsible for letting a lot of people outside the valley know what's going on in the valley. You were asked to write a story a couple of weeks ago I think by the New York Times about the heat. Oh no, that was in Palm Springs Life. Oh, well, some some organization, <laughs> Palm Springs Life or New York Times. Facts. Yeah. Maybe it got picked up by the New York Times. Maybe some people don't have Google. 
I know. Yeah, so... The des- about the heat. Yeah, so the Desert Sun, they actually asked me this. It was about two months ago. The new editor of the Desert... Or not Desert Sun, Palm Springs Live said, hey, would you write an essay about the heat? And I was like, you know what? This is the point at which I've made it. I'm literally being asked to be given money to talk about the weather, which, hey, I mean... Hey. And more than he makes. Well, I finally that, understood. That's not hard to Because do. you that, said more than it's hot. I did say more than yeah. it's hot. So I, I wrote an essay for uh, Palm Springs Life about, um, about Todd, actually Todd, my love of the desert. Would you in, like to co-host a podcast? <laughs> well, I've done that for some time. I talk about that, too. Um, so, yeah, so Palm Springs Life had me write an essay. And actually, the cool thing was is they asked me to write it, and I had just done a, a very fun thing, which was I had gone on a ride-along with a Joshua Tree Park Ranger. And she took me out to these crazy places. I, I'd say some of them on the radio, but I don't actually want anyone hiking out there. I actually, I actually edited something in the story so no one would go to this place where we went. But there's this place that I'd only heard a rumor of. Nobody listens to this podcast. You can tell we'll us. We'll just say it. There's this place <laughs> way out in the middle of the desert that I'd only heard rumors of where there were old cars that had washed away in a flood at the turn of the 20th century. Or not the train, like like 1930s. I'd only ever heard sort of talk of it. I never knew where it was. And so she took me out there. And it is way out there. Like you're halfway to Rhode Island when you're there. And there's like Studebakers and old Cadillacs and stuff in this desert wash that had been swept away, you know, literally 100 years ago. Um, But she had walked me out there. And I'm a middle-aged, portly Jewish person with a dairy allergy. So profound that about five (laughs) seconds ago we had to stop the show because I thought I was going to throw up on the table. Um, and we were, you wouldn't be the first guest, yeah, by be. the way. And we're walking through the desert, and we're having this great conversation. And it was about 80 degrees, and I thought, I'm going to die out here if I keep walking with this crazy person with a gun to see this. Like, this is, it's really hot out. And I suddenly realized, like, how it is that German tourists always end up dead in Joshua Tree, like, in April. You're like, oh, they, they should have brought a bottle of water with them. <laughs> um, or two. Um, a couple, and, yeah. And so I ended up writing a little bit about that in, in Palm Springs Life. And actually, that, that essay has been very popular online. I've been, I've been hearing from a lot of folks from all over the world, in fact, about it. New York Times probably called you on it. Yeah, the New York Times wanted to, wanted to know, like, is there a way they could co-opt the Pulitzer nomination for me, you know, from Palm Springs Life? Um, but, you know, growing up in the desert and living here now, um, you know, the heat... Is, is something that obviously is a persistent part of all of our lives. And people just don't understand that, you know, if you come here and you're unprepared, the desert the desert wants to kill you. The desert is it an friendly place. It is not a friendly place. And I'm always... So I, one of my other jobs in life, in addition to high-fashion Jewish model, um, <laughs> is I direct a very large graduate school for the University of California, and I bring out 100 grad students to the Coachella Valley twice a year, and they're all writers, and so they, they get this notion like, oh, I want to go out to Joshua Tree and experience the Joshua Tree and write a poem about it. And I'm like, do it in December. <laughs> like, and, and then even in December, don't do it because you're going to freeze to death. And <laughs> no one really understands, like, you know, the air conditioning and, and the water and the concerts and the bars and the clubs, we know how to live inside here. The outside doesn't care about you. The outside no. wants you to die. And sometimes stuff comes in from the outside, like scorpions, right. occasional snake. And so I'm always, I'm always, you know, I always have to tell people that come to visit, like, take more water than you think, and then also just, just stay at the pool. Yeah. There's no real reason to go yeah. out. 
And buy a $30 bottle of mink oil. Yeah. <laughs> From a man named Rick, it turns out. <laughs> Dan Man. Who owes me $165. To this day. And if he's Rick, listening. Rick, if you're listening, we would appreciate you squaring up with Todd. That would do, be good. Do we have anyone here that can do a little research and find out what $165 in 1987 is worth today? Could someone Google that? Oh, John. Yeah. Could John, you, our producer, is going to do like that right now. There's like nine people jumping yeah. on that right could now. Could you Google what $165 in 1987 would be worth today? So the tan man, if you're listening, you owe me four hundred forty-three dollars <laughs> plus interest. Yeah, all right. Yeah, plus interest. Meet, yeah. meet me at the little bar, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Just not in the next half hour. It's going down. <laughs> Don't bring dairy with you. So as I'm reading this book, and I mentioned this to you in the in the first time I interviewed you, where did this mind come from? I, I mean, this is pretty intense stuff you're yeah. describing. Somebody being decapitated uh, as they sit in a grave that they're digging. <laughs> yes, um, that, that does happen. You came from a family of, it appears, real overachievers. <laughs> a lot of successful people. Maybe it, we're just smart. But you've also talked about the fact that, honestly, you felt like your parents were kind of screwed up. Right. Was this survival? Where did this all come from? So my love of crime and crime fiction um, and so, you know, it's important to note that I'm not the only one in my family that's like this. So my brother Lee um, is also a big-time famous novelist uh, and has written 40 crime novels of his own and made a bunch of TV shows uh, where people die. My uncle writes true crime books. Um, my wife has a very active imagination at Sprouts where she'd like to kill just about every single person at Sprouts. <laughs> That'd be a great book. Sprouts. Just she, just she would like to go into Sprouts and just be like, each and every one of you must die. Um <laughs> You know, so I, my, my parents for sure were, uh, were difficult people. My mom, who I mentioned before, she was the society columnist out here. My dad was a TV newsman in the Bay Area in the Pacific Northwest. He was an anchor man and, and then later on a station manager. Um, and people know if you work in, um, in local network news, you know, you're fucked up. Oh, Jesus so I can't disagree. I, I, just, I, I would like to disagree oh, at this Jesus. point, but I cannot disagree. I keep forgetting that Patrick is here. <laughs> God damn it. Sort of like Randy. Don't start talking <laughs> about chamber CEOs uh. or we're going to have a problem. <laughs> so my, my oh, dad... you were barely there long enough to qualify for God's sake. <laughs> so my dad was on the news up in the Bay Area, and this is important because at the time in the Bay Area... KPIX. He was at KPIX and he was at KTVU. Um, at that time in the Bay Area, there were actually like... 12 serial murderers yes. operating at that same time. Yeah. We led the country yeah. at one point. And so we had, like, we had a... You must be uh, proud. We had a beach house when I was a kid at Capitola, and one of our neighbors was murdered. You know, four people were murdered in the house next door. And these are things that I sort of always knew about. And then when I was a kid in Walnut Creek... Wait, in the house next door? Yeah, in the house next door. One of the... I, I can't remember which serial killer it was that killed all the people. It might have been Kemper. Ed Kemper. Um, or someone else. I can't remember which one. If people had killed all of my neighbors, I would remember who did it. Well, I was two. <laughs> I was two. Um, well, I did, okay. I did write an essay about it where I might have named them in that one. Um, but then when, when I was a kid in Walnut Creek, where I lived until I was 13, um, the serial killer that we now know as the Golden State Killer raped two 10-year-old girls just down the street from me, like one Jeez. block over. And at the time, he was known as the East Bay Rapist to us. 
So this was happening all around me growing up. And your dad was covering it all. My mom was covering some of it. My dad was already gone at that point. Well, but my mom at the time was working at the Contra Costa Times, and they were leading all of the, and they were contributing, they were leading all the coverage of that stuff. And so it was a real part of our lives. Yeah, you were kind of immersed in it. Yeah. And so, like, at night, my mom would say, lock the front door so the East Bay Rapist doesn't break in. It's like, oh, that's a normal thing to tell to a seven-year-old or whatever. You know, it's like, um, but also at the same time, like, this is when Steven Stainer was abducted. And, and then when Steven Stainer showed back up. And for those of you that don't remember Steven Stainer by name, they made a, a terrible TV movie called All I Know Is My Name Is Steven. Um, where uh, Stephen comes back. And then, of course, Stephen Stainer's brother became a serial killer, which is a crazy story. Carrie Stainer. Um, so growing up in the Bay Area at that time, I was immersed in it. Like, it was a part of our daily lives. Kids were being abducted. There was a bunch of murder going on. My mom was a, a socialite and was sort of involved with, like, a, a quasi-criminal element. My dad had already revealed himself to be a sociopath and was living in the Pacific Northwest, so I was worried maybe he was the Zodiac. Um, <laughs> so you weren't sure that there wasn't a serial killer in your family? Right. Or potentially the Unabomber. Or, the, or potentially that. But at the, all, while all this was going on, my brother was already starting to write. So by the time I was 10, my brother had published his first novel. My brother's nine years older than me. And I remember this very vividly. Um, when he went off to college, he left me a bag of books and it was Jim Thompson and Elmore Leonard um, and uh, Robert Parker. He left me, like, the history and the canon of American crime fiction. And that was my YA fiction. I wasn't reading Fault in Your Stars about young cancer patients falling in love. I was reading about hitmen killing cops. Like that. You weren't reading the Hardy Boys? No Hardy Boys for me. Sean Cassidy, he, never, <laughs> he didn't play well in my house. Parker Stevenson, none of that. No, no. No Nancy Drew either. That's a good memory. Um, really so, good memory. And, and the important thing is I started to read those books as soon as I was able to start reading because I was profoundly dyslexic. And so I didn't start to read until I was about nine. And then I, when I began to read, it was like an avalanche. And so as soon as I could start reading, I was reading crime novels because they were also pretty easy to read. It wasn't like, it wasn't like reading, you know, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or something. It's just a lot of like I walked in and shot at my left. Um, and so I think short sentences, easy yeah, to remember. Easy to remember. <laughs> so I think my my interest in my um, my love of crime fiction started very early because it was easy for me to read. Um, but also, you know, I was a dark, weird kid. You know, I think probably all of us were, <laughs> if we're doing this conversation. You know, anyone that um, I think anyone that is creative and interesting as a young person is not always the most popular person when they're eleven. You know? No, most creative kids are, are weird kids. Yeah. A little, little weird. Yeah, and I was a weird kid. And it wasn't until I moved out here, in fact, and it sounds like, like I picked up the family and, and drove us down here. Like, my mom got a job <laughs> and we moved here. That I, I sort of was like, okay, I've, I've been a weird kid all my life. Like, I have an opportunity to sort of not be weird anymore, and I should probably take that. Um, and so... And this is another part of, like, my, my fondness for this sort of stuff. It's like I recognized at 14 years old that, oh, I could change who I am right now if I want. Wow. Like, I could arrive here and be a completely different person and no one knows, which worked for, like, three years. This is a great story. Well, I don't know if it'll be great. You can judge it, cut it if it's not great. <laughs> three years. Everything's great. I've changed exactly who I am. No one knows me. I'm awesome. I'm very attractive at this point, <laughs> I've seen the haircut. Girls, girls are falling are. for me. Yeah, everywhere. yeah. Popular people love me. 
first day of uh, senior year of high school, we're at orientation, like, you know, you're in homeroom, and they're going through the alphabet, and they're going through, and I'm holding court, as you might imagine, as me at 17 would do, and they're talking and calling names out, and they, they say a name, and they say this, I'm not going to say this person's name, because I think she might still live here, but they say this person's name, and I'm like, that's the same name as that girl who used to tease me mercilessly for 11 years when I was a kid in the Bay Area, and I turn, and I look, and she's staring at me, and I was like, oh my God. She's like, you. And I was like, you? <laughs> and she was like, uh, you're not, you're not, like, I remember you differently. And I was like, well, you know, I'm a man now. I'm 17. <laughs> <laughs> but your arch nemesis had moved here. Yeah, she had been a real bully to me. <laughs> wow. And then she was like, well, I mean, like, you know, I, uh, it'd be great to meet your friends. And So when did you and Wendy get married? <laughs> <laughs> How terrible. <laughs> He's a monster. He is a monster. He's a monster. Well, you're going to be co-hosting next week. <laughs> I'm married for 25 years. I hope you're happy with that. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've been really enjoying this. I want to find the line. Okay. Uh, th- there was, it was in uh, the story, The Low Desert. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm, I started reading them, and you told me not re- don't read them out of order. Correct. If you uh, can try. Which I'm doing, but I won't. I'm going to go back and fix it. <laughs> Who reads the short story collection out of order? Who would do that? I'd just dive into a book. Like, it, I, would you read a novel out of order? TV no. people. Okay. But I. But that's it was funny, because I called Randy, and I said, wait a minute, is it supposed to be a novel, or is it just a collection of short stories? Because I just right. kind of dove in randomly. So I put it on a teleprompter, and <laughs> he got through it pretty I got, quickly. I got through it pretty quickly. <laughs> I, I'm pretty good with cold reads. All right. This line... Mm-hmm. Really resonated with me. Okay. Uh, and it's a wife speaking to her husband. And she says, You're not made up of your worst days, Morris. Mm-hmm. No one is. Yeah. Where do you get stuff like that? Where does that come from? Because I, I think that's really, really brilliant. Because I think a lot of us feel like we're made up of mm-hmm. our worst days. Um, that's my favorite line in that entire story. That scene is my favorite scene in the entire book. It is wow. my favorite. Well, I'm glad to know that because it's my favorite line. It just was, it really resonated. Yeah, I, I love that moment. So the Patrick's talking about a, a story in my book, The Low Desert, the title story called The Low Desert, which is a, a story that takes place in the Salton Sea in the 1960s where a uh, basically a, a security officer finds a dead kid on the shores of the Salton Sea. And you start to figure out over the course of the story that all is not what it appears to be at our fetid, <laughs> rotten sea, which at the time in 1962 was not none of those things. Um, a line like that actually comes from reality. Like, that's something that my wife said to me once. And I, I held on to it because it was meaningful to me. Um, I was, you know, I, I think it was probably 15 or 20 years ago at this point, and it was, no, I actually, it's less than that, because it was after my mom had died, and I, uh, this was before I'd written my, the book Gangsterland, which is the precipice for all of these stories, and I was going through a difficult time, and I'd gone into therapy um, for the first time in my life, but probably later than I should have, <laughs> and I was sort of reckoning with, you know, the mistakes I had made as a younger person, and the anger I held towards my parents, which we've obviously talked about here today, and so I expect to give each of you a $30 copay. Um, <laughs> yes. But also just about, you know, useless petty things about my career and things like that. And I was often ruled in my mind at night by, you know, reliving 
being a bad person because I think sometimes I had been a bad person when I was younger. And I just remember Wendy saying to me, you know, you're not a compendium of your worst days. You know, you're, you're misjudging the quality of your life. And it was one of those moments where it's like, well, I mean, what a simple sentence to say to someone, right? But it was one of those moments whereas at the time I was 40, I think, it was like, right. I don't have to choose to be this person. I can be someone else entirely. I can, I don't have to, I can choose to be happy with my life. And it was just a really sort of important moment. And when I put it in the story, I said to Wendy, like, hey, I'm going to put that thing you said to me in the story. And she was like, all right, cool. And then she was like, well, you didn't tell me you were putting me in the story, too, because that the wife character is has a more than a passing resemblance to my lovely wife. Uh-huh. Well, to me, it was, it was kind of the linchpin of the story. I mean, it, it's a... Folks, you need to get the book, The Low Desert. The stories are terrific. Um, you write with this... A tremendous sense of realism. Uh, I kind of, when you read your stories, you feel what the characters are mm. doing. It's very, it's almost tactile. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how you developed that uh, style as a writer, because it, it's really terrific and it's fun to read because you feel the stories. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big eavesdropper, and so I like to listen to people talk. And I like to listen to the rhythms of speech. Um, you talk about going to Walmart. <laughs> well, not Walmart. I'm a Target guy. A Target guy to listen to people yeah. talking. I like to listen to people talk, and, like, and I like to talk to strangers um, because people will reveal things about themselves, um, and you learn stuff just by the rhythms of their speaking. And so whenever I'm writing dialogue, I'm not trying to convey information as much as I'm trying to convey logic. And I think you learn a lot about a person when you begin to understand their logic. And so I try to write dialogue that reflects not just who that person is in that moment, but an entire history that's led up to that moment. Um, and, and that's what conveying logic does, and that's why the, hopefully the dialogue seems realistic. Yeah. Um, but also it's sort of the kinds of stories that I write. I mean, there are some stories in the book. There's, there's one story that's, um, that's sort of surreal called Goon Number 4. Uh, which actually takes place in Call to the Desert, um, <laughs> and which I'm actually I'm 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 literally in the middle of developing as a TV show right now. Really? Yeah. Um, like literally, I I I ate the salad that made me sick before I got here, and uh, I'd been working on the script with my uh, co-writer. Um, before I got here for an adaptation of it. But anyway, that's a longer story. Um, but um, you know, I crime stories require in my view, a foundation of reality. And so you want to write about real people so that when you're writing about things that are dark or strange or, or blackly comic, the foundation of reality is consistent, you know? And so in a way, you're required as a crime writer, if you write good crime novels, sort of internationally hailed crime novels, sort of the crime novels that are up for major awards, sort of the Goldbergian crime novel, if you were. The, the crime novels that you would write. The, the ones that I do write. Um, yeah. <laughs> the ones that you have in fact One of written. the most widely held crime writers of his generation, for instance. Congratulations, by the way. It is nice. Um, See, this is all the stuff you didn't say about him. He's got to get... Because yeah, I knew he would. Yeah, I don't... Like, you forgot to say all the awards. Um, so, I, I feel like that style comes from the kinds of stories that I write. Stephen Sondheim said, content dictates form. Um, and so, I feel like if I were writing romance novels, I would the, the writing would be different. 
Um, but the content here dictate, dictates a kind of form. You guys didn't think, by the way, I was going to drop Sondheim on your hands, uh, did no. you? Or That's content. <laughs> uh, well, what I liked about the dialogue, and, and you kind of just explained it a bit, it moves the story a little bit, but it's more character development. You right. learn about these people through this, the conversations mm-hmm. that they have. Uh, it, I mean, I just, it, it's really, you deserve those awards, by the way. It's you. good stuff. Thank you. I, I, I'm still amazed at where the weirdness came from. <laughs> because it wasn't unique to just you. No. Within your family. No. Everybody came out of that. And went on a pretty successful path. Yeah, so my brother, like I said, he's he's a novelist and TV writer and movie producer and stuff as well. My sister Linda is a is a as famous as an artist as you can be as an artist and not be famous. Um, like you can go to Home Goods and buy art that she's made, for instance. She's successful and famous. And then my sister Karen and my sister Linda um, write books together. But my sister Karen is uh, a lawyer. But my sister Karen is the most talented of all of us. She could have done anything. But fortunately, she's a lawyer because I could use her. <laughs> after this podcast. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> we might need to hire her after this podcast. <laughs> you, you just might. So uh, did, how long did it take you, and did you kind of come to grips with the way you were raised, the relationship with your parents, and the person that you became as a result of that? Well, yeah, you have to. I mean, I'm a 52-year-old man. I, I have to get new regrets. <laughs> so you got to clear out space for new yeah, regrets. Yeah, I mean, because you've done a lot of publicly, you've been pretty open about your relationship with your parents. Yeah, I mean, look, as a writer, you've got a couple choices. You can be a recluse or a recluse, depending on how you pronounce that. You'll fix that in post. You can be uh, you can be the kind of you can be pinching, is what I'm saying. You can be um, a public figure only when your books are out. Or you can make a choice to talk about things on a regular basis and also put out books. <laughs> and I've chosen to be number three. You know, I write a lot. Um, I, write a lo- I write a book every 18 months. I write a lot of essays. I write a lot of op-eds. It's my chosen form of expression. But the other part of it is I recognize that the troubles that I had in my life. So, I, you know, I've, I've written extensively about this. But I had an essay called um, uh, When They Let Them Bleed. That was in Best American Essays a few years ago. And it was about sort of having suicidal ideation when I was a young person and weird body image issues and all kinds of things um, and how it dovetailed into me seeing uh, the boxer Duke Kim get killed in the mm. ring fighting Ray Boom Boom Mancini. So I'd witnessed it on TV just like millions of people do, but it had a really sort of profound effect on me. And when I wrote this essay and it came out and then was in this book that lots of people read, and I re- started receiving so many emails from people saying, you experienced the same thing I experienced. I've never known how to talk about it. I recognized then, like, oh, you know, there, there's an opportunity for me to be able to speak for people that don't have the facility or the articulation to do it for themselves, and I should take that more often. Um, and so that, that comes through in my writing, but it also comes through in sort of being a nominal public figure. Um, if I have something that I feel strongly about, you're going to know about it. Um, and that means if I want to write an op-ed for, uh, you know, a newspaper or something about something controversial, um, I'm not going to do it and be scared because I know that I'm speaking for a lot of people that share my beliefs or share my concerns or my worries. There was a, a, a time a couple of years ago when um, it, was, it was shortly after the Tree of Life shooting in, in Pittsburgh, and I wrote an op-ed for the Desert Sun that was very long. It's like 1,500 words. It might be the longest thing they've ever published there since, since they let Bruce go. 
um, <laughs> <laughs> um, about anti-Semitism in the, and anti-Semitism and its history in the Coachella Valley. And at the time, there was a guy running for mayor of Indio who was just this virulent anti-Semite who would post things on the internet all the time about, you know, like George Soros and, you know, Antifa and the Jews and stuff. And I was like, this guy represents me and I don't want him to anymore. And so when I write this essay, I'm going to mention him and then he's no longer going to be mayor of India. And so I did that. And then he's no longer mayor of India. I don't even think he lives in the state anymore. Um, and I did that not because... Um, I was just angry and wanted to write about it. I did that because I wanted to change something in the public. And that's different than writing novels. And that's different than writing funny essays. That's about saying to myself, okay, I have a pulpit, and I'm going to use it, when I use it, expressly for good. And so I feel like that's an important part of this evolution. You know, like, I can use the pain and my ability to conjure the pain of my childhood or whatever to talk about bigger and more important things. Thank you for that. <clears throat> and, and you have been our favorite podcast guest. I just want to get that out there now before anything comes. Yeah, because I will write a letter about you. I will, I will. In the desert sun. No, no. If I wanted to get a wide readership, I'd do it in the other times. <laughs> Actually, Go I ahead and ask him back for the second edition. <laughs> Please. Did, did you get pushback from people who knew your mom as you started to write about some of her failings? Um, yeah, you know, here in the desert, for sure, um, uh, you know, her friends were still here. Yeah. Um, some of them are still alive. They're very, very old, so they won't be listening to this. <laughs> they they, they, won't they weren't killing people anymore. Yeah, and they won't be, they probably don't play this at the assisted living facility. You guys don't, you're not going to do a live show. At That's one from, of our biggest distribution <laughs> points. <laughs> from Eisenhower. You have to explain Spotify. We just played, over, we just played over the loudspeakers there. <laughs> do a live show. It'd be very popular. <laughs> For seven minutes. Um, <laughs> I just got a spit take, ladies and gentlemen, from Patrick Evans. Um, That's because I haven't done anything for seven minutes in a very long time. <laughs> he's down to four. <laughs> four and then ESPN and he's done. Um, I, get three, I get three minutes max in the weather department, so. <laughs> oh, boy. It's a stiff wind coming. Um, it's hot. So, yeah, you know, sometimes I would hear from, from folks. Um, but... You know, so here's the thing about growing up at the Coachella Valley. So my mom was a very popular person. <laughs> um, and so I knew all these people growing up, and that afforded me some things in life um, that have been cool. Like I've been, I've been, people have accepted me into places that I shouldn't have been when I was a younger person beforehand because of because of my mom. But even something like <laughs> there was a time um, when... Um, University of California was trying to, we wanted to do some business with the film festival. This was like 20 years ago. And the University of California was having a horrible time sort of getting anyone at the film festival to respond to us. And I was like, Harold Manser is friends with my mom. I was like, let me talk. Like, next meeting, just bring me there. And so I remember we went to this meeting and um, everyone's talking to Harold and he's just like, he's barely listening. And, like, there's all these suits that are talking. And I was like, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. So finally, I just leaned across the table and said, Harold, I don't know if you remember, I'm Jan Curran's son. And he was like, oh, yeah, the writer. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, would you be involved with this? I was like, I'd run it. And he's like, okay, we're done. And he got up and left. That was it. And he was like, and the chancellor of UCR was like, do we have a deal? And I was like, we have a deal. He's like, how did that happen? And I was like, grew up in the desert. 
That's how business happens sometimes. That's all it took. Sometimes it is. You know? It's like, particularly with Harold, I think. Yeah. That, you know, that, that is. And he was a very kind man. You know, I, I enjoyed the opportunity to, to work with him and, and UCR's involvement with Short Fest and stuff. It was a good time. Um, but, like, that, the Chancellor was just like, so, so you just told him that he knew your mom and that was that? And I was like, here's what happens in the desert. You don't, you don't carpet bag into the desert and think you're going to get yeah. anything. And, and, and that's been true to your question. Like, yeah, you know, people, people knew my mom as one thing, but um, it's hard to argue with their child. <laughs> Let's talk about the other place in your life. You're a professor at UCR. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're teaching people or helping them learn how to become better writers. Correct. How difficult is it you're not trying to turn everybody into the type of writer that you are. No, God, no. So, so how I mean, difficult really is it to, to... I mean, like, the, the assignment is to help them find their voice. Right. right. Well, I have the benefit of having extraordinarily talented students. So, um, you know, running a graduate school at the University of California, it's not like running a graduate school at... Um, what's a bad school? Let's pick one. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Fresno City College. <laughs> yeah, it's not, like, it's, not yeah like, it's not like that at yeah. all. It's not like running a, a MFA program at Fresno City College. So, you know, we're going to get really great applicants. Um, and so, and I select all the students. And so I'm selecting 15 students every time, so 30 new students every year that I know are talented and that I know that I can help. I think, and I, and I speak of myself in a plural here, because in fact, of course, I have professors that work for me. I've got 15 amazing writers that, that work for me that are professors. Um, but we share a philosophy, and that philosophy is you're not coming to graduate school to be the most um, well-read barista at Starbucks. You're coming to this graduate school to sell your book, get on a TV show, sell your movie. You, you are coming to be a professional writer. And that's what separates this MFA program from other MFA programs. Most MFA programs seem like an esoteric pursuit, because it is, because they don't teach you how to publish. They don't, they don't critique you toward publication. They critique you toward being the best in that room right there. I don't care about that. I think that's, I think that's a, a dumb way to teach creative writing. I teach creative writing so that you can compete in the marketplace. So you can sell your work. So you balance the artistry with, with the, the, practicality world, with of, the practicality of, of, of selling this yep. stuff. And so, for instance, so we've been very successful. So the program is 15 years old uh, this fall. Um, and it, so the great thing is, when the program started, so when I founded this program, there was an MBA program that started at the same time. And they, they started the MFA. It's just sort of like, well, we're doing a, this business school. We better do something for the poets or whatever. And it was, <laughs> it was a complete and total afterthought, the MFA program, which I took profound umbrage with. Well, I, I encourage you to go look for that, that MBA program at UCR Palm Desert. It ain't there. It's been gone for about 14 years. Whereas we're entering 15 years and 75% of our students publish or produce within two years of graduation. So wow. hugely successful. Hugely successful. Best-selling authors, filmmakers, everything. Um, and it, it, you're correct, Patrick, is the balancing of the art and the commerce for sure. But it's also about being realistic with a student. And so I, as, a, as a book critic, in addition to everything else that I do, so I've been a book critic for, I was a book critic for USA Today for like the last five years, LA Times, all sorts of places. I can look at a book and, and know pretty quickly, like, no, that's not going to work, and why. 
Um, and so I can say to a student 45 pages into their book, hey, that light at the end of the tunnel, that's not just a train. It's a train hauling nuclear waste. And it's barreling towards you. <laughs> it's not a light. Um, and so I'm not going to let you write 500 pages of a novel that's not going to sell. I mean, I'll let you write it. If you want to do it, go ahead. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the, the skills to, to make it better or to, to make the key changes. And I think that sort of, that sort of honesty is what's missing in arts education in general. Now, the other side of it is I have the benefit of having students that are a little bit older. Average age of my students is 39 years old. Wow. So I'm not dealing with 23-year-olds every day. Right. Dealing with 23-year-olds is an entirely different animal. A 39-year-old coming to an MFA program spending a lot of money, you know, tuition's not inexpensive. And they know how to write more than 140 characters. Right. Um, you know, they also are, are here because they're ready to change their lives. And I'm ready to help them to help them get there. But, you know, I don't, I don't have kids. I just have a disposable income um, and a dairy allergy. Um, but having, you take the good with the bad. <laughs> but having, I'm available for adoption, by the way. Having had, in those 15 years, we've, we've graduated 500 students from the program. Um, I know every single one of those students personally. I know their families. Um, it's been the most fulfilling and important part of my professional life outside of writing the books because I get to, I get to help someone achieve the thing that, um, that seemingly was not easy, but easier for me than I think a lot of people. I mean, I, I, mean, I published my first book when I was 29. Wow. Um, but you know what's funny, you guys? I'm going to turn the tables. I was just having this conversation the other day. I, at what point did you feel like you had made it? Or do you still feel like you're, you haven't made it yet? Like, do you feel like you've made it, Patrick? No, <laughs> no. There are many people in my life who will tell me that, that that's true. I have not. No, I, no, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know what my goal was to begin with. And right. maybe that's, that's, uh, that's just poor planning. Uh, to degree, the degree that I feel like I've had uh, success in my career, right. I, I, I've, I've held a steady job, right. which is pretty good. Right. Uh, did I accomplish the goals that I set for myself when I was 14? No. Right. Uh, well, Jared Jeter was ahead of you in the farm system. so <laughs> They were never athletic goals. They, the, that was not the cards I was done. No. Uh, you and I could start our own athletic team. <laughs> Middle-aged men with no talent, but good voices. Good, yeah. Good voices and bad legs. We're really funny at the 19th hole. That's what we're going to... Randy keeps inviting me to play golf, and then he tells me, like, oh, I shot a 77 oh, this one. I'm like, I'm not going to play with no. you. Yeah, but you didn't ask me how many holes I played. <laughs> now, Randy, you've retired already, so did you feel like you made it? No. No, I, and I've been very public about this. I spent 39 years in a career. I could never figure out how I got into it. Right. Um did you ever like what you did? Not that uh, I, I like, want to focus I, I, on it. Yes, right. Yeah, let's but, talk about me for yeah, a few but minutes. But did you like what you did? I no. mean, all this has a purpose. No, you never. There, there, you, there were, I found parts of it that I liked. Right. And that's what kept me coming okay. back every day. Right. Yeah, but, but, but the career itself was not something that I got into. To your point, if I had said to myself at an early age, my goal in life mm -hmm. is to be happy. Right. I hit my goal now. Right. But there was no point in my life until about two years ago where that became my goal in life. And see, that's the thing. So my goal in life as a young person was I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a book and get it published. Well, that happened when I was 29 29. Years old. 
and I sold it to a film company, and they gave me a, a huge amount of money. I got to move back home to the desert and be happy. Well, of course I wasn't happy. You know, the, every, everything, life still has to happen. But from the outside point of view, right now, if I look at my career, I've published 16 books. I haven't received a bad review in 15 years. I have a good living. I can go on to Amazon. Yeah, I mean, not from not for people I care about. <laughs> He's about the right one. That are still living. Um, but, you know, like, I, I started a graduate school at the University of California. I've played a pivotal role in getting other people's dreams made. But I, I don't think I've, like, I've never felt like I've made it necessarily because there's always some sort of other artistic goal or other thing that's just out of reach. But... You know, it's one of those things I start to think about now. It's like, well, I've actually, like, as a writer, you know, I've achieved all the pretty big things. Um, and so maybe making it is just feeling satisfied, right? Satisfied with yourself as a human, but satisfied with yourself as, as a man or as a woman or whatever. Isn't there something to be said, though, for the human condition where as successful as you are, you're still hungry for maybe that next thing? thing and that's what kind of keeps us going i know randy's yeah. given up on that but <laughs> i think you and i are still in the game yeah i mean it, but I, I suppose it just depends on like what the next thing is you know i would i like to sell more books yeah i'd like to sell more books sure um you know would i like to have my own tv show yeah i'd like to have my own tv show but i don't want to work on it <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this we're going to wrap up here in a couple minutes but i want to ask you this you wrote a book called "Where You Lived." Is it a book? Oh, that was just a that was just a uh, an ebook special they had. Ebook special. Yeah. And your brother Lee wrote 2011. Please buy it so he doesn't have to pimp out his wife on the mean streets of India. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Where did he say that? Has everything worked out okay? Yeah, everything, everything's <laughs> fine. Jesus. Where did he write that? It was somewhere. Good Lord. <laughs> now you get to have a conversation with Lee later. I, I, I won't. Wendy will. <laughs> but you've Jesus. not had to pimp out Wendy. Uh, no. No. Jesus. Let's just make that clear. Good Lord. Well, this took a turn. Remember, Linda, Wendy has the access to the same lawyers he does. So, like, yeah, my God. <laughs> Thanks, Randy. So you've been successful. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so Where You Lived was a was this little three three short story special that we did on Amazon for uh, three short stories. Like, I, I, so long ago that I'd forgotten it existed until you mentioned it. All right, what is next? What are you What are you working on that we will? We got find a big out? one coming out. Yeah, I got a I got a new book coming out uh, September twelfth. Uh, Gangsters Don't Die will be coming out is the conclusion of my Gangsterland trilogy plus the short story collection. So a trilogy and a half. And the main character. The main character is a rabbi named the Rabbi David Cohen, who's actually a Chicago hitman named Sal Cupertine. Um, and so these books started in, uh, first book came out in 2014 called Gangsterland. Sequel was called Gangster Nation, came out in 2017. And then this book was, I was supposed to write it, um, but I got involved in making a TV show of Gangsterland that didn't come out. Um, <laughs> maybe that's why I don't want to work on it anymore. I spent three years doing it. Um, I wrote the short story collection, which is all in the same universe, The Low Desert, which Patrick was is reading out of order, much to my chagrin. <laughs> I'll fix it, I promise. Yeah, I'm going to go home and fix there it. There will be a test. Um, and so Gangsters <laughs> Don't Die is the conclusion of the Sal Cupertine, Rabbi David Cohen storyline. There will be no more stories about Sal? I don't believe so. I've got, I'm, I'm writing a, a, my, the next book that I write 
takes place at the Salton Sea, and it's the story that you, that's the title story of the Low Desert. So it's about uh, this sheriff at the Salton Sea. In well, the I will tell you, because when I read that short story, I felt like I had read an excerpt from a novel that I really wanted to finish. Yeah. And I was like, I turned the page, and I was like, this is a totally different story. Like, where does that guy go? I would, um, well, he does show up again in another story, which you'll find out. How did you feel about the fact that this may be the last time you write about Rabbi Cohen? Well, it won't be because I will sell the, the television show again. I mean, that's if we. So here's the brief story: is that Amazon was developing a show based on these characters, and they ended up turning it around in 2021. Um, so I'd spent three years working on a TV show for Amazon based on this with a really great team behind it, um, which was disappointing. But we'll sell it again. And so when we sell it again, I will surely be riding Rabbi David Cohn again. Sal will ride again. Yeah. He's uh, like a family member at yeah, this point, right? Yeah, but as a book, it was hard. I mean, I got, I got very emotional at the conclusion of it. Um, you know, he's a character that's existed for me since 2008. So I'd originally written a short story about him that was in a book called Las Vegas Noir. And then I had the champagne problem having other books under contract before I could write a book about him. Um, and so he's been in my head sort of constantly since 2008. And the only other voice in my head for the last 15 years as, as persistent as that is, uh, um, I guess, the little friend I called Mean Todd. No, uh, Dark Todd. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> my dark passenger. Yeah, my dark passenger. Um, so it was emotional. It, you know, the characters don't die in my head. You know, I wrote five books based on the television show Burn Notice. And there's a part of my brain that is still Michael Weston. Wow. You know, like I, every room I walk into, I look at something and, and I realize, like, what could I use as a weapon to turn into a bomb? And so I know everything in here that's flammable that I could turn into a weapon or into a bomb. So you're MacGyver. Yes, I'm essentially MacGyver. <laughs> but the, the wonderful thing is that, like, I learned all that, but I, I lack the real detective skills. Like, there, there was a, some old friends of ours, it turned out, two sets of friends had been having affairs with each other. And I, for somehow, didn't realize this. And one day, one person calls me and says, I'm in love with so-and-so, and we're leaving our spouses. I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm writing this down on a piece of paper to my wife when I'm on the phone with her. And she was like, and I was like, what the? So I get off the phone. I was like, you knew? And she was like, well, Michael Weston, while you're in the room taking up all the air, I'm the one breathing. <laughs> and I was like, oh. That's awesome. And she's like, how did you not know super spy Michael Weston? That when two of your friends are obviously cheating on each other with their with other people, I was like, I, I just want to see the best in people. <laughs> just before I kill them at the salt yeah. sea. <laughs> so, Todd, this has been fantastic. I think we should have Todd on again. I, I know you do, and actually, I I actually agree. This 100%. may be one time you actually agree with me. I feel me. like this is a situation where you're like, you know what? Maybe we need a third guy we as a host. No. What, uh, no, he's thinking we only need two, but Randy isn't one of them. Uh, Randy can play golf. He's He's got other activities. No, uh, but I do. I really want to get you and Bruce Fessier, who was a, a guest earlier, because we, and we didn't even really dig into this, but I really want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the mob history behind yeah. Palm Springs, and, and you guys are both very knowledgeable. I used to sit across the table from a guy named uh, Jimmy Kachi. Yeah, yeah. He's a criminal. Yes. <laughs> it was in a place called Tony's Pop. He just called him friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just called him Jimmy. Yeah. 
That's not like, even his real name. I'm sure it's not. Uh, but, but I, five fingers. No, just true story, and, and I'm sure that Todd knows this. But I would go into Tony's pasta mia, and you'd sit down with Jimmy, and he was a delightful guy. He was always dressed to the nines. Always to the nines. Yep. And he would draw a, a cartoon of Betty Boop or so, and and give it to the girl you were dating. Here, I drew this for you. And she'd be like, oh, that's so nice. Hug him. And then years later, I'm reading Bruce's story. Like, and notorious former hitman, Jimmy. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. How many nights did I The guy who left with my date. Look, well, no, he never left. <laughs> no. Dude, I always left with my date. <laughs> okay, okay, whatever. I mean, this Holy is cow. important. I mean, this is why you need Bruce and I on. It's like there was a period of time where from Palm Springs to Palm Desert, there was probably 20 Italian restaurants and every single one of them was owned by a gangster. Every single one of them. Alberto's. Well, there's uh, a few of them, yes. <laughs> there's the ones that always burn down, for instance. Well, yes. But no, when I first <laughs> Just moved before here, renewal yeah, period. There, there was Alberto's, <laughs> yep. it, Rancho Mirage. Yep, Alberto's, it, Alfredo's, it, and somebody, Dominic's. One, but one person told me, they said, you know, Alberto's is the best Italian restaurant that nobody ever eats at. Yeah. <laughs> and all these guys, you know, when I was in high school, I went to, I went to school with a bunch of guys whose last names were, you know, Zangari and Banana. And you're like, oh... Huh. Yeah, well, up in the Bay Area, we remember the Bonanno brothers very well. Yeah, but they were, they, were, they were here. Yeah. Um, you know, like <laughs> California Cheese Company. I'll tell you one final story. This is a good one about my interest in organized crime. So this was when I was in high school. We lived, my mom and I were living in a condo at Saddle Rock Gardens, which is the condo complex directly across the street from Smoke Tree, right? Um, and... Inside this, there's probably, there's probably 45 condos in a square. On the far left side, there was a guy whose name was Charlie. I believe it was Charlie Fibiani, if memory serves me correct. This is 1985-86. He would lay out at the pool, and he was covered in bullet wounds. <laughs> Just pitted with bullet wounds. Like he had been shot 30 times. And I was like, I said to my mom, oh, my God, was he in the war? And she's like, no. <laughs> He's never been out of the U.S. <laughs> never. And then on the other side of the condos, there were uh, some, uh, some guys that were uh, Bonanno connected. And they dated uh, they, these, they, and they had a son who uh, I was friends with. I won't say their names because the son's still alive. Um, but they were Bonanno connected, and they, they lived right there, too. And... Charlie was not in this crime family, but they all had the same friends. And so they would meet on the tennis court and bullshit all night long. And they'd just be out there drinking and having a good time. Well, my mom, an enterprising woman that she was, was like, well, the Bonanno guys are dating my friend Dorothy and all this stuff. I can't go with them. But Charlie, he, maybe he's out of the game. I'll start dating Charlie. And so for about six months, my mom dated this guy, Charlie Fibiani, covered in bullets. And he would do things like he'd come over and he'd say, you need some new shoes. And I'd be like, okay. And he'd be like, come out to my car. He'd open up his <laughs> trunk, and there'd just be... What size are you? There'd just be Ferragamos <laughs> in the trunk of his car. And I'm 16 years old going to Palm Springs High School. Like, I need some Ferragamo slides, you know? <laughs> and I was like, I think these are too expensive for me. He's like, ah, you look good. You wear them to prom. Just hand them off to me. And he, he also had a house in Mexico. And he would always, like, he'd, he'd say to my mom, I'm going to be gone for about two months in Mexico. And then he'd come back like four months later, and she'd be like, oh, you said you could be back in two months. He's like, yeah, you know. <laughs> what size happen. do you wear? Yeah, I got a, I got a dress for you. So, 
eventually, like, I, I got wise to the fact that he was covered in bullet holes because he had been a Chicago uh, soldier. And so I said to my mom, because he would just tell me these stories. I said to my mom, like, aren't you worried dating this guy who's covered in bullet holes? And she said, Todd, imagine his luck. <laughs> <laughs> He's still alive. Yeah. Imagine his luck. Imagine his luck. Uh, I've never forgotten of, that. I, I could, don't think we could end on anything better no, than I that. There's no other explanation point to put on this podcast. Todd Goldberg, you are a delight. <laughs> You're a you treasure. We really, it. really appreciate you spending some time with us. Good and time. First of all, A, congratulations on your success with the novels, the books, Thank the short you. stories, but more so with the students that you've churned out. Thank you. Uh, that's, that, it, the books that's are a, a lasting deal. legacy. It feels great. But every student you turn out is another part of your legacy. Thank you. I agree. And it passes that on to their families. <laughs> thank and, you. Thank um, you. Thank you for spending time with us. My pleasure. Good time. On your first of 15 appearances on our podcast. <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, having a continuing role whenever <laughs> any one of you has to have a call. I think you two should invite me back to your next episode. We'll certainly miss Randy. Uh, <laughs> well, and I should say, so... Uh, I, I've been the host of an extraordinarily popular podcast. 200-plus episodes. For 10 years, but we, we've gone on hiatus. Yeah. Um, you guys are pretty good. I mean, I have some, I have some notes. You okay, well, I look forward to the notes. I'm sure most of them are for Randy. <laughs> Maybe a couple for John. Uh, we thank our, our producer, John McMullen, who is the entire behind-the-scenes brains of this operation. Randy, thank you very much. Thank here. you for letting me be back for another week, Patrick. Delighted to have you along as our co-host and sidekick. Uh, you are... Uh, no doubt the Robin to uh, John McMullen's Batman. Or, no, he's Alfred. <laughs> Todd, thank you very much. You're listening wow. to Big Conversations <laughs> Little Bar. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform. If you're listening, you already have. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations, Little Bar.